good to be here. I really appreciated the messages that I've heard so far. And uh, I trust God will continue to lead us as we seek His face. I'd like to open your Bibles, if you would, with me to Nehemiah 2. I shared a message on Nehemiah 1 some time ago. And uh, now I'm looking at Nehemiah 2. Um, message title is uh, The Man with a Godly Plan. I'd like to read through this and then look at it, look at it at this passage reflectively. So let's read this. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. And I said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber, to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertained to the house and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into it. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, that it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I rose in the night, and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung fort, and viewed by the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then I went into the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I yet, as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then I said unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. 
Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands to this for this good work. But when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and the Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? And answer, I, answered I them and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. So I want to think a bit about planning this morning. Um, that's what my mind goes to when I look at this scripture. And there are several examples that come to my mind. One is building. Um, it's so important, as all of us know, to have a plan when we build, build a building, build a structure. Uh, there's so much financial um, need there. There's, and uh, there's also so much, um, if you're doing the project yourself, there's so much energy to expend. And you want to make sure that this building's going to meet the needs um, of, of what it's being built for. And so it's worth taking a lot of time to plan. Um, another, another example that comes to my mind is Shackleton. Have all of you read the story of Shackleton? Are familiar with that? How his his quest of getting to the North Pole, and uh, and uh, you know winning that uh, race. And it's been a while ago since I since I listened to the story actually. But uh, what I was impressed with with him was that he set up so much redundancy. He set a lot of way stations uh, or, or um, provisional stations, much more than he needed for the race. He planned carefully ahead and uh, he made it uh, just barely, but he made it. Well, maybe that wasn't Shackleton. Um, I may, I may be getting confused with another story as well. But Shackleton set up lots of provision and he, he did make it. Um, another thing is, is that uh, of, of planning that I think of is financial planning. Um, you know, thinking of moving from one point to another and being prepared. Um, I just have to think, you know, that the person that is planning to put a down payment on a house is probably going to handle his money differently than the person um, who is not worried about that. Planning is such an important part of our lives and it's an important part of the life of the church, I believe. And I don't have all the answers here. I'm not, not here to, to try to say that uh, I don't feel that way. I simply believe that we have we can learn from this passage and um, there are principles here that we can go by. Um, so let's look at this. Nehemiah here, a godly man of vision. It came to pass in the month of Nisan and some of this will overlap with what I've shared in the, in the last, in uh, Nehemiah 1. Um, and we have here that Nehemiah, about four months after um, 
his friend had come and told him how bad things were going in Jerusalem. It seems like there's about four months here. Is in the presence of the king. And the king makes this observation. Uh, he says, you're, you're sad. You look sad. And he says, there's, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. The king is telling Nehemiah this. And Nehemiah answers back, uh, was first his first response was he was dreadfully afraid, and then he says, "May the king live forever." Uh, a dreadful fear, followed up by, you know, let the king live forever. I think he was trying to tell the king, "This isn't something, you know, between you and me." Just wanted to make that clear. And again, let's remember the implications. The the cupbearer is that link between uh, that maybe that last link between. Uh, someone that would want to take the king's life by poisoning him or putting some uh, substance uh, in his drink, maybe even food. And so it was pretty important to the king that the cupbearer was a happy man, that he had a good attitude. And uh, it would have been of great concern to the king, I'm sure, to see a cupbearer that... that uh, that didn't um, look like he was content with his job. And I suppose that the cupbearers were targets of, of people with criminal motives. You know, there are probably a lot of people that wanted to get to the cupbearer, wanted to, had, had um, criminal motives against the king, and wanted to, you know, um, compromise the cupbearer. So the king is concerned here, and it seems like Nehemiah equally concerned that the king uh, knows that this isn't about the king himself, but something else. So he had, the king asks him what's going on, and Nehemiah answers. Like I said, he had spent a lot of time in prayer, probably four months, and he was ready and willing to give an answer that involved his own skin here. He was ready to put his own skin in the plan. Why should not my face be sad, he says, when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and the gates are burned with fire? Why should not my face be sad? Now remember, this had happened many, many, many years before. Um, you could wonder that Nehemiah even remembered, um, you know, the the destruction of Jerusalem, and so forth. But he does. It seems like it's an ever-present grief to him. The, the gates, the place of his father's tombs, they lie in waste. The, the gates are burned with fire. I believe Nehemiah's distress was seated in the knowledge that the holy city of his father's wasn't being rebuilt. He had formerly acknowledged that it, there was a just punishment here for the city to have been burned. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, we have dealt very corruptly against these, talking to God, and have not kept thy commandments, nor thy statutes, nor thy judgments, which thou commanded thy servant Moses. So he's, he's, he's acknowledging that they deserved this punishment. But I believe here he's, he's grieving because they're not moving ahead. They're failing to move ahead even after the Lord gives his blessing on them to do so. 
The city's just staying there when even after God had formerly told them, especially through Ezra there, you, you're free to go back and rebuild. He goes back to um, the word of Moses and brings it forward. And he says, uh, but if he turn in verse 9 of chapter 1, if he turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though, all, though there were of you cast into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. He's bringing that promise forward to his time now. He's, he's reminding God of this. And he's telling him, now these are thy servants and thy people, and we're ready to do this. So this is where Nehemiah is. He, he's grieving because what could be isn't being done. He moves ahead here in verse 4. The king said to me, what do you request? How do you want to take care of this problem? And it says, Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven again. He didn't just start blabbering away. He took time to, to contemplate there. The door was open for dialogue. I have to wonder how long this, la this prayer lasted. Was it 10 seconds? Was it two minutes? Was it a 10 minute prayer? I don't know. Uh, it would have been interesting to know, you know, or was there days elapsed that he was praying about this? I don't think so. I tend to think this was maybe a, a brief prayer where Nehemiah backed up. He prayed for God's wisdom here in responding and then moved ahead. But what is really noteworthy to me, here is Nehemiah. He's in the presence of the king, a person that um, would seem to have been able to, to do everything that Nehemiah felt like needs to be done. And he didn't pray to the king. He didn't um, just do obeisance. I don't know what he did you know, in front of the king, but it says his prayer was to the God of heaven. That's where he knew the power was coming from. And this speaks volumes to me about Nehemiah's character and his faith. Because he was looking to God, even though he had a person here that was offering him um, the power and the in the ability to change um, to change the things he needed change that needed to be changed. And then verse five, I said to the king, "If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it." So he's asking for personal. Um, Liberty to move away from his job, there's a cupbearer, and go himself to the city to help rebuild it. Send me to Judah for the purpose of rebuilding. And this to me is an impressive request. Especially when you consider all the grief that Israel caused Babylon there so many years ago when they were subjecting them and when God was meeting out punishment upon them. Um, it would have seemed to me to hear that, that Nehemiah was putting his life on the line or putting his job on the line at least. And secondly, I think that their king must have had a tremendous amount of trust in Nehemiah 
to uh, believe that he wasn't going to betray the king's interest. Just for the king to keep listening to him, I think indicates there was just a lot of trust built there. The king said unto me, how long will your journey be? And he says, I set him a time. Nehemiah was serious. He, this thing uh, was in his mind. His heart was ready. And he says he set him a time. He was prepared. He was ready to move ahead. His homework was ready to hand in. I believe God plans. He does. We know He does. Um, what we see around us, even creation, verifies that. And I believe He works through the plans of His people. <clears throat> I believe planning is a way that we cooperate with God. It's a God gene that we have in us that can be developed and be very useful for the kingdom. And I'll delve off just a little bit further here. These are some of my own thoughts. I've seen these bumper stickers that say, um, God is my pilot. Now that followed the bumper sticker that said, God is my co-pilot. People didn't like God is my co-pilot. So they, people, the other people said, no, God is my pilot. And just a few thoughts on that, maybe. Um, in a way, I don't think God is our pilot. You know, that in a sense makes us helpless. Um, God's not our co-pilot, or He's not a passenger. I believe that would denigrate His being. God is our Creator. He's our Maker. He's our Owner. And I believe He tasks us. And then He, he lets us move ahead at our own volition. And uh, we can really um, move the work of God ahead or we can be an um, impediment to the work of God, I believe, an obstruction. Now, I'm not going to hold it against anyone here if they said God is my pilot or even co-pilot. Uh, I don't feel so strongly about that. I'm just These are just some of my thoughts here. I believe we're called to plan, though, using God's Word as a framework to fulfill His purpose and His will. The guiding of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is the closest thing to piloting. But even here, God leaves it up to us as individuals and His people um, corporately to prayerfully develop plans and to fulfill His will. So, Nehemiah had a plan, and I believe it's good for us to have a plan. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let the letters be given to me. There was no hesitation here on Nehemiah's part. He asked for um, a passport, so as to speak. A visa to enter and move through all the territory between um, where he was at and where he was going to Jerusalem. And the king went ahead with it. Again, it just shows that the king was bought in and he was trusting Nehemiah. A letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, 
So here he has this planned out as well. No wasting the king's time here, you know, and well, maybe I'll need this, maybe I'll need that. I'm not sure, you know, whatever. There was no wasting of the king's time here. He says, give me a letter to present to the forester that, re that will require him to provide me with all the timber I need to rebuild the city gates, the gates of the temple courtyard walls, and the timbers needed to rebuild the house designated for me to live in. And the king grants his request. So there's prayer. When the doors open, there's movement. Things don't always work that way. It seems like many times uh, the Christian life can be a little bit like the military. Like you hear about the military, hurry up and stand still. Um, but I think that shouldn't give us reason to pause necessarily. We should take that time to prayer and to, to uh, grow in our faith. There's so many different ways to move and to grow um, when we think of, about our Christian life. In verse 9 then, Then I went in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And this I find interesting. Ezra denied that. Right, he he didn't take the the uh, as I recall, he didn't take the king's soldiers with him. But Nehemiah, he he took advantage of that. He was in a government position, and he used government means to move ahead with his mission. And somehow, some ways, it's not so unlike us today. In in every, in almost every endeavor that we undertake, uh, at least in a in a sense. Uh, it, In, in a worldly sense, should I say, if we decide to build a building, if we decide to move forward in some way, we need, we need the permission and the goodwill of those around us, of our government. We need a certain level of authorization. And it's, it's uh, truly difficult and it's, it's hard to do, to do so. If uh, We found that in Romania, um, how difficult it is to move ahead when you don't have the goodwill of your government. But I'm not trying to pull this all together. We see Nehemiah here. He's in a little different situation. He has the king's soldiers. He has the king's army. And he, he moves ahead with them. He moves on and, and towards his mission. And the king understood the complexity here of the situation. He, was, he gave himself fully to it. Gave his own people to it. And that's what I see the, is the important part of this is that God was working in the heart of the king, Artaxerxes, to help this plan uh, reach its accomplishment, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And then they run into trouble. They get there. Uh, there's the Samballot, the Hornonite, and Toby, or Tobiah. I'll call them Toby and Sani. And uh, they become deeply disturbed. And I believe it speaks volumes about them. Um, why were they distraught? Because of someone of stature and means had, had come to seek out the welfare of these survivors or these refugees in, in uh, Jerusalem. I suppose by this time, um, word had arrived to him that this man, Nehemiah, he meant business. He wasn't the local paparazzi or a medicine man 
or a comedian to make everyone feel good. He was a man of business. And there was something about him that really needled um, Sandy and Toby. And they were upset. Till now, they and their people had managed to keep the spirit of Israel crushed or simmered way, way low. They had successfully obstructed the gates from being installed around the temple courtyard. And in this way, it made the temple less than sacred. People could come and go at will. Ownership and care were nearly impossible. Um, the temple was just, you know, not what it should have been. They kept the walls from the city from going up and doors being installed. No walls, no doors resulted in not being security. And this resulted or had the effect of a breakdown of, of the Hebrew society. And as a result, a long-term result, the survivors were quickly taking on the identity of the idolatrous neighbors. So things were going Sani and Toby's way. It's also interesting to note that this, there were still houses without doors. And this gives the sound or the impression of a rundown community. A place where squatters can easily set up. And an undesirable place to set up your home. Not a safe place. In essence, a rundown place pours to thievery, rebuilding materials in short supply, resulting in, barely, in a barely surviving Jewish community that was rapidly becoming, as I said before, more and more like Sandy and Toby's people, as we'll read about later in Nehemiah. Verse 11, I came to Jerusalem and, there was, and was there three days. I suppose that Nehemiah was just spending time here in these three days surveying things in Jerusalem. I'm thinking that he was just trying to get the feel of this place, to get the heart of his people, to know them, to know what they were going through. Here he had come from a place of relative ease and comfort and stature. And now he's also with his own people here and it's quite a difference. I believe he was preparing his heart in prayer and uh, for the next step of implementation of Jerusalem's restoration, rebuilding. <clears throat> in verse 12, it says, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. But before that, he says, I rose at night and a few men with me. So he's taking some action. He's being very discreet. And I find it interesting that if you look at the sequence here, even before that he announced what he was going to do, he was getting this opposition from Sani and Toby. Um, and he's still being very discreet. He goes, he uh, arises at night. And I think he's making sure that he doesn't fan the flame of hope or opposition at this point. He knew what his task was and he was knifing in very carefully to make sure it got done. And maybe this is a good thing for us to learn, to be more doers and less announcers. I think of the political field today and what a mess we see around us. Um, or northeast of us. And um, you know, I think maybe if we would have more doers and less announcers, life would make be better for everyone. 
But here he is, he's, he's quietly surveying and being, trying to be, to see and not be seen. I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well, and he surveys these different places to the fountain gate. And down in verse 16, the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I'd done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. It's getting a real good up close midnight or moonlight feel of this place for himself. And he's ready to, just about ready to launch. Verse 17, he makes the announcements. He pulls together the elders, the nobles, and I believe probably the people who did the work. He says, you see the distress we are in. By this time, I believe Nehemiah felt this distress. He felt it in his heart. Um, He sensed the magnitude of it. He saw the hopelessness on the people's faces. He saw the rubble. He knew all those stones would need to find their place again to make the wall come back up. And he was ready to pull people together. You see the distress we're in. How Jerusalem lies in waste. The gates are burned with fire. Come and let us rebuild the, and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Come and let us build that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God. So there was personal testimony here, which had been good upon me. And his personal testimony basically saying, God has been blessing me. God has been blessing this work from the very inception. He's brought it forwards and he's letting them know that. So he's saying now, and he says, the king is on our side. Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to the good work. And I just think of Nehemiah here again as being an official survivor now with his fellow Jewish brethren. He's put himself right with them. Hey, let's get up together and let's build this wall. Why? So we'll no longer be reproached. Our enemies scorn us now. They walk over us and they use us to their own advantage. We can't get ahead. You know, the little bit that we do gather, they take from us. Can't even store our own crops safely. We work for naught. We plant and gather and our enemies plunder everything we store with impotence. Our temple's a laughingstock. Our enemies ask, where is your God in derision? They traverse its grounds as a shortcut and spit on the temple walls. I'm sure there was a lot more of reproach than this that he talked about. But these are just some of the things that come to my mind. And it's hard to really know what a survivor, a refugee, goes through unless you've been there yourself. I haven't. I don't know what that's like. I can only imagine what it's like to not know where your next glass of water is going to come from. To not know where your next bite is going to come from. To not know where you're going to sleep. And I think there was that, a lot of that feeling there with these, with these uh, remnant Jewish people. And Nehemiah felt that with them. He was also taking a big step down in worldly esteem to join hands like this with survivors. These were a mixture of folks. Some of these folks were the ones that were just left behind. The king just left behind because he really didn't want them. And there were others who had come back in Ezra's time to build the wall with mixed success. 
But what really strikes me again, and I'm just emphasizing this, Nehemiah was all in. And I believe that is what it takes my friends to build, to be all in. They said, let us rise up and build. They weren't calling in the disaster service or relying on Nehemiah. There was an acknowledgement on the goodwill of God and on the goodwill of the king. And after that, there was this forthcoming resolve to rise up and build. And I believe there's no greater force in the universe than of the people of God with a plan to fulfill his will empowered by his blessing. I don't believe there's a greater force in the universe than that. And the people of God with a plan to fulfill his will being empowered by his blessing, God's blessing. So when Sani and Toby, and then we have Geshi, he joins the crowd here. When they heard about it, they laughed and they despised us. And uh, said, what is this thing you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? The plot thickens. They throw at Nehemiah the biggest, baddest challenge they can muster. You're rebelling against the king. And this is really a formidable challenge for for Nehemiah to overcome. If, If these three fellows could have knifed in and taken away the trust of of the workers and of the people and and all those involved with, with helping to rebuild the wall, all would have been lost. But somehow there was a, a trust built there between them and Nehemiah. And and these three men, Sani, Toby, and Geshi, they couldn't they couldn't get in there and, and ruin the work, spoil the work. And Nehemiah replies, I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we as servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. I believe he told them this pointedly because he knew they weren't there to help. He knew they weren't there to fulfill God's plan. But they were there just to tear down, to strike out anything that was put up. Therefore, thanks to God's hand of blessing, we will move ahead and build. And I think he told him, please step back and don't try and distract us. It isn't your business and you have no right to inherit right to interfere. And so there's four steps here I'd just like to look at very briefly. I see I'm almost out of time. These four steps, one is understanding. We're so prone as humans not to understand and to be upset at our circumstances. We're aware there's a need. We're certain something needs to be done. Then we tend to take the next step of doing before we really understand. And I believe that God would have us, before we do anything, to, to be to be first and foremost. Be in prayer. Seeking God's Lord's face and His will. Be available. Interested in listening to the needs of God that God brings our way. Be humble. God works through the hearts of the humble. Those that with humility seek to know and work with him to accomplish his purpose. And this is much more, this is much more different than grabbing a verse of, out of the Bible to de- defend our position. Rather, this is a humility that seeks to know the heart of God while using his entire word as our guide through the leading of the, his Holy Spirit. And I believe that's what Nehemiah was doing during those four months. Be there, be involved, be interested, be one with your brotherhood. 
I believe all of these are so important to first be, to understand. Then there's the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, This is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all things of being. I think these are things that we need to have in place as part of our understanding before we move towards the doing. And then there's the vision thing. Maybe this should have been first. I'm not sure. I, I went back and forth on this. But there's having vision. Proverbs 29, 18 says, when there's no vision, the people perish. I, I suppose it should have been first. Um, in the New King James Version, it says, where there's no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Have vision, vision that truly matters, vision that truly accomplish, accomplishes and is life-giving. Vision that will build and bring glory to God and bring people out of shame and reproach. And this truly is the revelation that comes from God in the person of Jesus Christ. That is having vision. When we know Christ and His will, uh, that brings vision. This vision that will always... This vision will always align with New Testament teaching and it will conform to it. Maybe its vision could be described as the broad brush to life's outlook. It serves as a moral compass. It sets our priorities. And, and surely without that revelation, God's people will perish. Nehemiah knew God's will for his people. He felt that burden. God is putting on him to take that next step of restoration And he was in the place for God to use him in this critical time because he had vision. And how do we gain vision? We walk circumspectly, not as fools. We redeem the time. We speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We give thanks always for the good things of God in the Father's name and in the name of the Lord Jesus. We submit to each other in the fear of God. I believe those are ways of gaining vision out of, Galatia, out of Ephesians 5, 14 through 21. Then there's action. Good things come to people who are prepared. Good things come to people who are prepared. And we all have heard that saying, the early bird gets the worm. Um, you know, kind of cliche sayings, but they, they have a, a, a real truth to them. God brings responsibility in people's lives who have learned the value of, of, of being to those who are prepared. And on the other hand, I'm afraid, and I'm saying this in a very personal sense, I'm truly afraid that many times God sends responsibilities and opportunities our way that we entirely miss due to our lack of being, of being what, where we need to be, of being what we should be of not being in prayer, not being in tune with the will of God. We miss wonderful opportunities, I'm afraid. And then there's the willingness to move ahead in spite of intense criticism. I heard the saying recently, still seas don't make for good sailing. And there's a lot of truth there. Uh, We need to recognize that when... um, when the road gets hard, it's often because the devil is seeing progress. Just like Sani and Toby and Geshi, they all saw progress and that upset them and they rose up. 
you know, when, when things get difficult, let's remember progress is often a very difficult path. This is from David Guzek. He says this, Some people fear ever stepping out for the Lord because they know opposition will come. They somehow think their life will be better or easier. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Sounds like that way to me. They feel, they somehow think their life will be better or easier if they stay in their low, mediocre state before God. What deception. A better life from holding back for Jesus Christ, really? Tough times are going to come anyway, but when are we, but when we are going and stepping forth in the Lord, we are far more equipped to deal with them. Timothy says this, or Paul speaking to Timothy, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that worth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. That sounds like a difficult task, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like easy street. If you will uh, bear with me, I would like just to read in closing a contemporary, a more contemporary poem. And I want you to know this is more contemporary. And probably many of you know it, but I just think it, it adds a, uh, a certain element to what we've been talking about here. It's from uh, Rudyard Kipling. And it's, uh, it, the title of it is, um, well, I think of it as being, You'll Be a Man, My Son. Um, but I'll just start reading it. You'll probably remember it. And if you haven't heard it, you'll, you may want to read it yourself. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired of waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated, don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them, with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings, never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there's nothing in you except a will which says to them, hold on. If you can walk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. And I just think maybe if, if uh, Paul would have known about that poem, he would have maybe shared that with Timothy too. But um, I think it is so important that we remember that, that um, it's through our faithfulness, through our being 
through our willingness to endure, that God can work and work. Through our planning and through our willingness to let God intervene in our plans, uh, that, you know, that God can bring about his will and uh, his purpose. God bless you all.